Two wise men once said, She'll only come out at night, that lean and hungry type. Nothing is new. I've seen her here before. Watching and waiting. Oh, she's sitting with you, but her eyes, they're on the door. So many have paid to see what you think you're getting for free. The woman is wild, a she-cat tamed by the purr of a jaguar. Money's the matter, and if you're in it for love, you ain't gonna get too far. Hello everyone and welcome back to the remade and remixed Theater of the Golden Silent Films podcast. This is the start of a trip down memory lane with a twist that we think you fine listeners will enjoy. Or at least enjoy maybe more than the first go-round. Before we dive into our do-over episode here, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, please head on over to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little show. And for all of you folks on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One, or just search Golden Silence Cast, and we ought to pop up. All those screen names and sites will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. We would love to have you on board if that is the case. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode reveals, and other fun film-related materials. And a third year of great photos of our wonderful podcasts, Gizmo and Soda. Also, if you're listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or both. Our show has been around for three years, and we only have 11 reviews on iTunes. We would love to see that number grow, and you awesome silent film fans out there can make it happen. All of those ratings and reviews help immensely. Live your best review leaving life and help our little show grow and reach fellow silent film fans all over the world. Whether getting us more exposure in the world of podcasts or letting us know how we can improve, we appreciate all of that feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be a bit spotty, if you're subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment new content drops, it'll go straight to your listening device of choice. We are nearing the end of our third season and don't want you to miss a second. Now, for quite some time now, people have been throwing the same complaint at the current movie industry. They say Hollywood has run out of ideas. The creative rivers have gone dry. There is nothing new to see. We here at the Golden Silent Films Podcast couldn't agree more. All you get these days are sequels, superhero movies, and remakes. Not a fresh idea in the lot. Now that creative drought has certainly trickled down to us as well. With no new ideas to mine and zero creative avenues left to pursue, we as a podcast are being forced to get into the remake business ourselves. It was bound to happen. If the Hollywood bigwigs and power brokers can't come up with anything exciting and new, what chance does a small, silent film podcast have? No chance in hell that's what we've got, so remake time it is. Well, all jokes aside, this is an episode we have wanted to do for a while. You see, we have never been super happy with the way our first episode went down. In that first episode, we looked at 1928's The Battle of the Sexes. The bones of what the show would become were definitely there, but the execution the execution left quite a bit to be desired. An elite wise man once said, There are no wins and losses, just wins and learns. I wouldn't categorize the initial episode as a loss, but there was a lot to learn from it. Whether it was upgrades in processes and production, we learned and brought a tighter, better episode for the follow-up, which was a look at Alice in Wonderland. Heck, 
Even the show's name changed a couple times since that first outing. Basically, that first episode has always been an annoyance, and now we are trying to right those past wrongs and bring you a better, deeper, and smoother look back at the battle of the sexes. One thing that has definitely grown a bit since that first release is the research put into each episode. It took a while to get into the zone and give you fine listeners all that sweet, sweet information you want. Going into making this show, we knew very little about the world of silent movies and very little about the world of research, so it was incredibly important to get that research right. As we settle in to watch and discuss this flick, let's talk about the versions we will be checking into. Since this is a remake, we figured we gotta go big, go all out, you know? We will be digging into this in a two-pronged effort. The first viewing comes with the Kino VHS offering of Battle of the Sexes. The VHS version brings you a digitally remastered view with a musical score compiled by Rodney Sauer with assistance by Susan Hall and performed by the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra. The second lens we are looking at this through is YouTube offerings. YouTube is always the go-to option for many of you out there and we wanted to cover that as well. The version we found has so-so picture quality and halfway decent music, though not the visually ideal way to catch this movie, it is the most widely available way to check it out. So, with all that being said and a lot of the preliminary stuff out of the way, let's hop into even more preliminary stuff. This time, we will be having a go at some biographies of those involved in this film. We did a bit of biographical stuff the first time around, so we're going to try and change things up a bit. We're going to look at some different folks than we did before. While this is technically a remake, we are trying to give you more information, so when you listen to both versions, it doesn't come across as a total retread. To that end, let's look at the film's chief troublemaker, Phyllis Haver. She was born Phyllis O'Haver on January 6, 1899 in Douglas, Kansas. Her parents were James Hiram Haver and Minnie Shanks Malone. When she was young, her family moved to Los Angeles, California. Haver attended Los Angeles Polytechnic High, and after graduating, she played piano to accompany the new silent films in local theaters. Now, Haver would take that talent in the movie house and translate it to on the movie screen by auditioning for comedy producer Max Sennett on a whim. She definitely made an impression seeing as Sennett hired her as one of his original Sennett bathing beauties. Within a few short years, she was making her mark as a leading lady in Senate Studios' two reelers. In 1923, Buster Keaton cast her as the female lead in his short The Balloonatic. In 1926, Phyllis would make a small appearance in a favorite film of the crew here at Golden Silent Films Podcast. That film would be Don Juan, where Phyllis Haver played one of the Lothario's loves in that swashbuckling movie. Later, while signed with DeMille Pathé, Haver played the part of murderous Roxy Hart in the first film adaptation of Chicago in 1927, opposite Hungarian actor Victor Varconi. In a review on the Fantastic Movies Silently website, which you can and should find at moviesilently.com, we get a great description of Haver in this now legendary role. The review reads, Phyllis Haver was a veteran Senate bathing beauty, but she was also an extremely talented actress. She captures the infantile and homicidal personality of Roxy to perfection. You can just see the wheels turning in Roxy's dim little brain as she tries to both save herself and gather up fame. And that brings us up to her scamming and vamping in 1928's The Battle of the Sexes. We're going to hit pause for a moment on her story here and catch back up with Phyllis post-movie breakdown. Jose Page was born on November 4, 1904 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
If that name doesn't sound familiar, you are correct. In Hollywood circles, you might know him as Don Alvarado. Don Alvarado would eventually get his stage name from Alvarado Street in Los Angeles. He wasn't always a slick cinematic jazz hound, though. In his younger days, he studied agriculture on his father's sheep and cattle ranch, before eventually making his way to Los Angeles in 1922 while still a teenager, hoping to find acting work in the silent film industry. His on-screen work would come eventually, but in the meantime he made ends meet by taking work in, in a factory before getting into the movies. His Hollywood work came from humble beginnings. He started off as an extra, with his first appearance being an uncredited role as a dancer in 1924's Mademoiselle Midnight. These uncredited and secondary roles would soon turn into starring roles for the man with the smoldering Latin lover good looks. Not only did this move lead to more film work, but also new relationships. In Los Angeles, he became close friends with another Mexican actor, Luis Antonio Damaso de Alonso, who would later be known as Gilbert Rowland. The struggling young actors ended up sharing a place for a while, actually, and Alvarado soon met and fell in love with aspiring actress Anne Boyer. They would marry in 1924, later having a daughter named Joy that same year. The fairy tale romance, though, wouldn't last forever, though. Once Warner Brothers studio head Jack Warner entered the picture, things would start to get a little messy. Warner fell in love with Anne and convinced her to file for divorce from Alvarado using what used to be called a quickie divorce available in Mexico. She took him up on the offer and went through with it in August of 1932. She would move in with the studio Big Wig in September of 1933 and married him in 1936. Going back to 1932, Alvarado would be briefly engaged to the musical comedy star Marilyn Miller, but the marriage never materialized. The advent of the talkies, though, would not stop Don Alvarado. Though he didn't snag as many starring roles, he remained incredibly prolific, working regularly. The Latin lover made quite a career out of playing Hispanic roles throughout the years. Alvarado wouldn't be confined to the acting world either. In 1939, using the name Don Page for screen credit purposes, he began getting work as an assistant director for Warner Brothers and moved up to production manager a few years later. It was this behind-the-scenes work that led him to working on legendary films like The Treasure of Sierra Madre in 1948, East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, and his final film work, 1958's The Old Man and the Sea. Now, unfortunately, Alvarado would die of cancer on March 31st, 1967, age 62, in Hollywood, California, and was interned at Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Hollywood Hills. For his great contributions to the film industry, Alvarado was rewarded with a motion picture star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6504 Hollywood Boulevard. This honor was bestowed upon Don Alvarado on February 8th, 1960. Now... As talented as the actresses and actors of this movie are, no movie can exist without someone putting pen to paper. In this case, that person was Daniel Carson Goodman, or, should I say, Dr. Daniel Carson Goodman. Goodman was born in Chicago, Illinois on August 21st, 1881. While I couldn't dig up much about the early years of DCG, I can tell you things get interesting in his college years. Goodman was educated at Washington University in St. Louis, where he graduated in 1905 with a degree in medicine. Not one to let good enough be good enough, he took his studies and education international. He attended the University of Heidelberg and did postgraduate work in surgery at the University of Vienna, 
where he received a diploma in 1908. Returning to St. Louis, he started up a medical practice, and in 1914, he focused his research on cell division. For some folks, a highly respected medical career would be enough. But not for Goodman. Writing would soon become a love of his, a love and an interest that he was incredibly talented at. He wrote several novels in the teens, including Unclothed in 1912, Travail in 1915, and The Taker in 1918. In a biographical article about Goodman from the Thanhauser site www.thanhauser.org, we get some insight into one of his most controversial works. The article reads, Most famous was Hagar Reveille, a 1913 novel which achieved much notoriety, especially when noted do-gooder Anthony Comstock characterized it as immoral, lewd, lascivious, indecent, and filthy, and dragged its publisher to court, which action resulted in an acquittal. As might be expected, Comstock's comments were all utilized to good advantage in the publisher's advertising. Goodman would produce several scenarios for several different film directors and companies in his later years, and he was especially proud of his work with D.W. Griffith. In 1913, he was named by Charles J. Height as a scenario advisor for the Mutual Film Corporation. For Thanhauser, he wrote several scenarios and stories from which those scenarios were adapted, most notably that for Thanhauser's second serial, The Ill-Fated Zadora, later retitled The $20 Million Mystery, in 1914. His Zadora script would hit some snags and be generally disliked by reviewers. A Francis Worcester Dowdy was called in to add some shine to the script. Dowdy ended up rewriting this script for the show from episode 11 onward. Writing for the new Rochelle Pioneer, John William Kellett writes, when he decided to show there was something new under the sun, he, Daniel Carson Goodman, was sent for by Mr. Griffith and offered to blaze the trail. He found Mr. Griffith waiting to follow, and together they gave the world the battle of the sexes, which we're going to talk about in a second, and the escape. Danhauser, then producing Lloyd F. Lonergan's masterpiece, The Million Dollar Mystery, was forging to the front as the world's greatest producer of motion pictures, and Dr. Goodman was engaged by that corporation to write Zadora, a 40-reel modern mystic drama, scientific in construction, to be re released in 20 episodes. And it is said that Dr. Goodman is receiving $1,000 a week for 26 weeks to produce the scripts. This is believed to be the largest amount ever paid to a photoplay writer. The Annunzio, the author of Kiberia, having received the hitherto top-notch figure of $12,000. In the summer of 1915, various trade papers reported that he had signed a $60,000 contract with Lubin to write 12 feature films a year. His output that year consisted of The Silent Accuser and Think Mothers resulted, followed up by the 1916 films The Gods of Fate, Souls in Bondage, Love's Toll, and Her Bleeding Heart. Life would take a tragic turn for Daniel Carson Goodman in 1917. Goodman was engaged to actress Florence Labatty. At the time, she was one of Thanhauser's leading actresses. The Thanhauser site explains how things ended up so very tragic. The article reads, On October 28, 1917, while driving near Ossine, New York, in the company of her fiancé, Daniel Carson Goodman, the brakes on the baddie's car failed, and the vehicle plunged down a hill, overturning at the bottom. While Goodman escaped with only a broken leg, Labattie was thrown from the vehicle and suffered severe injuries including a compound fracture of the pelvis. Hospitalized, she clung to life for more than six weeks, 
and seemed to be improving, but suddenly died on October 13th from sepsis. She thus became the first major female film star to die while her career was at its peak, and the movie-going public mourned her death. 1919, 1920, and 1921 would see Carson Goodman get writing gigs for a number of film companies on a number of films. In 23, he married Alma Rubens, a screen actress from whom he subsequently became divorced. International Films Corp. and Cosmopolitan Film Corp. would hire Goodman for a couple of years in those early 1920s at a salary of $1,000 a week, increased on January 1, 1925, to $1,250 a week. Those two companies were owned by the Hearst organization. His time with Cosmopolitan saw Goodman work on films that showcased William Randolph Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies. Scandal and tragedy soon found Goodman once again in 1924. In a boat ride gone awry, big-time producer Thomas Ince died under mysterious circumstances after a party aboard Hearst's yacht, the Oneida. Goodman treated and accompanied a dying Ince to shore, where physicians could attend to him, but he couldn't be saved and died before reaching the hospital. Variety, in a March 1925 issue, reported that William Randolph Hearst was ending his film operations and letting go of employees and staff. The timing of the studio's shutdown was good for Goodman, as he had been in the middle of negotiating a deal with Louis B. Mayer, who represented Metro-Goldwyn. Mr. Goodman would not admit his relations with Hearst had been severed, Variety reported. He simply announced he was leaving for New York last Monday and would be gone for a three- or four-week vacation. It is understood, however, he is going there to negotiate a release for some pictures he has to make himself that will probably be with the Metro-Goldwyn organization. It was th during this time that Goodman kept busy and showed how multi-talented he was. Goodman wrote and produced a handful of films. Later, he wrote or co-authored a number of stage plays in addition to writing novels. Goodman's later novels included Fandance and Cockrow, and They Came to See Dr. Arcady. In 1943, a book of his short stories, The Dead Come to Life, was published. By the 1950s, the doctor-slash-writer was living in picturesque, I'm assuming, Flemington, New Jersey. Following a short illness, Goodman passed away at Flemington on May 16, 1957. He was survived by his wife, Winifred, professionally known as Winifred Spear, who was assistant fashion editor at the New York Times from 1935 to 1943, and a stepson, Peter Wallace Myers. Since this is a remake episode, it's only fitting that we're talking about a movie that is a remake itself, and by the same director, no less. The year is 1914, and prolific director David Wart Griffin is starting to take on the challenge of feature-length films, after almost five years of directing countless shorts. His 1914 version of The Battle of the Sexes would be Griffith's second feature film to be released to the public. This came only a month after the release of his first, Judith of Bethulia, which was a long-delayed picture Griffith did for Biograph. Incidentally, that would be the first picture made by Biograph, only to wind up being the second released. Like I said, it's 1914 and Griffith is entering the feature-length world. His original second feature was set to be The Escape, but that hit a bit of a snag when one of its actresses caught Scarlet Fever and the production was put on hold. The studio Griffith was working for needed a replacement and they needed it quick. He would soon decide to take on the single standard, 
by the aforementioned Daniel Carson Goodman. This era of Goodman's screenwriting work had a huge impact on the movie business and the work of D.W. Griffith. In an article for the New Rochelle Pioneer from December 5, 1914, written by John William Collette again, paints a very positive picture of Goodman's impact. Collette writes, Dr. Goodman is the creator of the modern realism that is found in the script of today, and the writer isn't detracting anything from the remarkable genius of David W. Griffith. Because of the big things done in photoplay during the past few years, Dr. Goodman has been directly responsible, although some of the bigger things written by the master of the modern silent drama were directed by Mr. Griffith. One has but to recall The Escape, The Battle of the Sexes, I, Mara, the Servitor, and Zadora to realize that it was the genius of Goodman that made these releases possible. Until the entrance of Dr. Goodman into the field of the silent drama, the public viewed the screen for the same old hackney themes, and the price of admission remained in the nickel and dime class. But now all this is changed. Larger theaters have been built, and prices advanced because a better class of people are following the pictures on the screen. There is more story told. It is presented in an absolutely new light and entertainment is competing for the first time with the output of the legitimate stage. D.W. Griffith made this original version in New York City and filming lasted all of four to five days with a budget of $3,500. The New York Times in their October 14, 1928 edition would provide some insights into this early outing. The newspaper would interview Harry E. Aitken, head of the Majestic Film Company, and get the behind-the-scenes scoop. So that article reads... Griffith left Biograph in October of 1913, Mr. Aitken said. We had two producing companies, the Reliance and the Majestic. The distributing company was mutual. Many Biograph players came over to Reliance and Majestic with or immediately after Mr. Griffith, and some of these actors appeared in the first version of The Battle of the Sexes. Aitken continues, We had two studios in New York City in 1913. One was up in Yonkers and the other was a loft in an office building or rather a department store building at 18th Street and Broadway. We hired the floor and put some lights in, and then we began making the battle of the sexes. I suppose production costs in those times rarely passed $1,000 a day, including salaries of players. Now this version would star Donald Crisp as the patriarch of the Andrews family, Frank. The Andrews of this film were the Judsons of the version we're going to look at. The star power of this feature was bolstered by Lillian Gish playing the daughter Jane, the Marie Skinner role in this was a vixen named Cleo, played by Faye Tincher, and Owen Moore playing Cleo's lover, that being the cheeky Babe Windsor role of the 28 iteration. The plot largely plays out the same in both versions. While the film premiered at Weber's Theater in New York City on April 12, 1914, and was really quite a success. From what I read, it was the first film to have Griffith's name above title. This 50-minute-long feature this is largely lost at this point in history. Noted film critic Iris Berry once mentioned a lone existing fragment of the final product. This surviving bit takes place in the restaurant where Miss Andrews and the children take a booth. The two children see their dad and Cleo taking a nearby booth. The mother doesn't notice this and the kids come up with a ruse to get her out of, to get out of Dodge before seeing her wayward hubby. And that is where the fragment ends. If you've seen the 28 edition, this scene sounds pretty familiar, right? One mystery that has endured about this 1914 version of Battle of the Sexes is the potential, possible, purported, maybe, alleged on-screen debut of Rudolph Valentino as a dancer in the background, 
potentially in the last scene I just mentioned above. He is known to have been an extra in an early Griffith picture, and folks seem to think the evidence points to him being in this. The world may never know the truth, and for now, we can only chalk it up to a Hollywood mystery and wonder and debate what really actually happened on that dance floor. So, I think this is a good point. We've had preliminaries about preliminaries. We've had build-up. We've had backstory. But I think we all want to talk about the movie, right? You wanted to learn about the movie a little bit, about the behind-the-scenes stuff. So, without further ado, how about we just get into the movie in a version of the movie breakdown that I hope is a little bit better than the first time we did this. So, Joseph M. Schenck presents D.W. Griffith's The Battle of the Sexes with Gene Herschel, Phyllis Haver, Belle Bennett, Don Alvarado, and Sally O'Neill. From the story by Daniel Carson Goodman, adapted for the screen by Garrett J. Lloyd, with photography by Carl Struess and Billy Bitzer. In the original episode, we went pretty in-depth with biographies focusing on D.W. Griffith and Gene Herschel, so we're going to keep it light on these guys this time around. But while we are introducing folks, let's take a look at Belle Bennett, the matriarch of the Judson clan. The plan is we're going to weave her life story throughout this episode. By the end of the film, you get a good feeling for who this talented actress was and why she shuffled off this mortal, mortal coil way too early. To start, Arabelle Bennett was born on April 22, 1891 in Coon Rapids, Iowa. Or was she? According to the New York Times, she was born in Maleda, Minnesota. Take that as you will. Regardless of her place of birth, she started entertaining folks as a youngster with her father managing a tent and wagon show that toured the Midwestern United States. The New York Times writes, Her father was William P. Bennett, one of the pioneer showmen of the tent area who arrived in the United States in 1898 and established himself in St. Paul in Minneapolis. His wife and later his daughter, Belle, played with him in his stock company. Miss Bennett really began her stage career when her mother, Hazel Bennett, carried her on the stage as the baby of the fatal wedding. As Belle grew older, her mother recalled that the child proved a good trooper and did not interrupt a single scene by crying. Her later silver screen stardom would percolate under the circus big top. Her first appearance in the public eye came at the age of 13 as a trapeze performer. Performances with stock companies led Bennett to Broadway, where she appeared in theatrical productions staged by David Belasco. So, a little bit of biography out of the way. The film begins proper by telling us that the battle of the sexes is always being fought and never being won. The first scene finds us in a fancy barbershop or salon. You know it's fancy because a guy is getting his nails taken care of. We pan over from his seat to a lovely set of gams sitting in a chair next to his. These legs belong to Marie Skinner, whom we learn wasn't as hard as most gold diggers. She was harder. Marie Skinner is played by Phyllis Haver. Marie is reading Little Women as she gets her hair done. I have to assume this has some deep literary meaning to the scene or the character, but I couldn't tell you one way or the other. My knowledge of Little Women is pretty meager, so you'll be getting no insights from me on that front. In the chair on the other side of her is Mr. Judson. In chatting with his barber, we learn Judson is something of a big shot, and rich too. I see in the paper, Mr. Judson, you make $250,000 in one deal, the barber says. Marie in a chair next door overhears this bit of financial info and perks right up. Ideas start swirling around that pretty little head of hers. 
By the way, Mr. Judson here is played by Jean Herschelt. Marie grabs a paper and reads about the deal for herself. The newspaper article talks about that quarter of a million dollar real estate deal that Judson just closed. We are back in the posh Judson family apartment. Snow is falling outside and Miss Judson and her adult children, a son and daughter, are helping put gifts on a living room table. Don't forget, these are adult children. The daughter is played by Sally O'Neill and the son is played by William Bakewell, playing Ruth and Billy, respectively. Miss Judson tries looking at a gift when Ruth chides, Now, Mumsy, don't you look till Papa comes. Gene Herschelt makes his Gene Herschel playing Mr. Judson makes his way into the house. He has gifts too. It turns out it's his wife's birthday. The two hug and kiss as he adds to the stack of gifts. Next up is a bit where Mama is opening her presents. The gifts she gets are really strange at times. I mean, it starts pretty mild with Mr. Judson getting her a nice shawl. Ruth follows up by giving her something. I've watched this movie a dozen times and still have not gotten any more certain as to what it was. I'm thinking it's a super big perfume jug. Her son gives her a briefcase filled with possibly some sort of womanly beauty implements or surgical supplies. Either option is viable and both kids are acting super weird. Not at all how well-adjusted quasi-adult humans would. They are so freaking weird. Mr. Judson asks the missus to hang up his coat. Under normal circumstances, asking your wife to hang up your coat on her birthday might seem boorish behavior, but in this case, it's perfectly alright, as he has a gift hidden in his coat. It's a rabbit doll, but wait, there's more. Inside is a jewelry case, and inside the case is a bracelet, and she is stunned by how nice the jewelry is. I mean, these two are so in love with each other, I don't see how anything can come between them. This is a movie about how much they're committed to each other, right? I think. While we're all enjoying the afterglow of Mrs. Judson's birthday, let's continue our look at Belle Bennett. Bennett began getting regular work as a film actress by 1913, and she was cast in numerous one-reel shorts by various East Coast film companies. She appeared in smaller flicks for Mutual, like 1914's A Ticket to Red Horse Gulch. She boosted her features resume by starring in several full-length films put out by the Triangle Film Corporation, including The Lonely Woman in 1918. Her studio-to-studio -studio movement continued when she appeared in the United States Motion Picture Corporation's film Flesh and Spirit in 1922. She would take her talents to Hollywood, where Samuel Goldwyn selected her from 73 actresses for the leading role of 1925's Stella Dallas. While she was filming the movie, her son, 16-year-old William Howard Macy, died. Macy had posed as Bennett's brother for some time, owing to her fear that her employers might find out her true age. She was actually 34 rather than 24, which she had claimed to be. Because of the loss of her son, Bennett became close to her co-stars Lois Moran and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who were also 16 at the time. Bennett did great work in Stella Dallas. In fact, it's possible she was too good. After playing the mother role of the eponymous Stella Dallas, that film would also feature future cinematic husband Gene Herschelt. As a result of her work in Stella Dallas, Bennett became the newest victim of the dreaded typecasting. This would go on for the remainder of her film career. The late 20s and early 30s would see her appear in motherly roles in 1928's Mother Macri, 
Our Beloved Battle of the Sexes, 1929's The Iron Mask, Courage, and Recaptured Love, both in 1930, and her final role, The Big Shot, in 1931. At least in The Iron Mask, she got to play the Queen Mother. Now, we leave the party and watch Marie Skinner and Don Alvarado's Babe Windsor looking into renting a place in the same building as the Judsons. The introduction for Babe Windsor is great and couldn't have been written any better. It tells us, Babe Windsor, the wrong answer to a maiden's prayer. Chef's kiss on that Daniel Carson Goodman or Garrett J. Lloyd, one or the other. Though the apartment is awfully expensive, Marie says she'll take it. Now we swing back over to the birthday dinner at the Judson residence. The cake is on the table with a lot of candles. An almost dangerous number of candles, to be honest. It is that most magical of times when Mama will blow out the candles and make a wish. She tells her family, I wish that life would go on like this forever. That is all well and good, but she fails to blow them all out in one go. Ruth, in typical weirdo behavior, chimes in, Ah, gee, Mumsy, you lose your wish. In light of Mother's failure, the whole table joins in to blow out the candles in an incredibly ridiculous effort, which they follow up with cake eating. Back over in the Skinner residence, we find out the two crooks have their eyes set on Mr. Judson as their newest mark. In fact, they have done recon and made note of his whole daily routine. Mr. William Judson, apartment 1114 Babylon Apartments. Leaves for the office 8.30 promptly. Returns home 5.45. Attends church with family 10.45 Sundays. Missing about every other one. Seldom goes out at night alone, excepting Wednesday to Fraternal Club 9 p.m. Marie appreciates this intel Windsor was able to procure. I gotta hand it to you. You're handsomer than the front of a bank, she tells him. Marie hugs and kisses him, but he seems not so into it. He leaves and Marie celebrates. We fast forward a bit and Marie is wearing an alluring nightgown waiting for the Judson family to return. It's almost showtime. In a clever gag and camera trick we get a view of what Marie is thinking and how she will entice the family man. She goes out her door as he is coming in and feigns a fainting spell. He carries her in and she starts kissing him wildly. That'll do it. It's a perfect plan, right? Nothing can go wrong. Well. A mouse has other plans. As she plots her charade, the mouse climbs up Marie's leg, and in sheer terror, she runs out and runs into Judson, telling him to kill the mouse. He laughs and rolls up a paper and goes after him. William Judson is no Craven the Hunter for fur. I mean, for sure. He makes a bit of a fool of himself, diving all around, trying to catch the vermin. Eventually, it is shooed out, and Marie yells for Judson to shut the door before it comes back in. Realizing she inadvertently got William Judson right where she wants him, now Marie does the feigning shtick. He catches her as she falls. The worried Judson attempts to resuscitate her. He leaves her for her for a moment to get water. Alone, she adjusts her cleavage for maximum impact before he gets back. He spritzes water on her and she pretends to come too. Where am I? she asks. They talk a bit before Judson tries to take his leave. He wasn't quite hooked enough, so she has to alter her plan. As, she, as he turns to leave, she says, You're Mr. Judson. I've seen so many pictures of you in the papers. She really gets to schmoozing. From the eyebrows up, you're a spitting image of Napoleon, she tells him. They shake hands, and Marie says, Awfully glad I met you. 
for you know, a good girl in New York gets so lonesome. The schmooze works, and Judson leaves a smitten kitten before returning to his apartment. Meanwhile, Marie is incredibly proud of herself. Back in the apartment, Judson is feeling rather proud of himself as well. He takes a moment to appreciate himself in the mirror, thinking of his encounter with the vivacious Marie. We are back in Marie's apartment where she is playing the rock and roll piano as the maid cleans up around her. Just as she stops playing, Mr. Judson stops over. Marie welcomes him in. He tries to leave, but Marie stops him and says she has a surprise for him. It's a book. Napoleon I, an intimate biography. In an effort to continue the charade and the schmooze, she points to a picture in the book and says it looks just like him. At this point, Judson is torn. He wants to stay, but he also wants to go home and be with his family. The familial feeling finally wins out, and he tells her he must get home. She wants him to stay for just a minute. She takes him over to the piano and shows him the sheet music for a song called Rose in the Bud. She starts playing. It goes a little something like this. Are you afraid to bloom in crimson splendor, lest someone come and steal your heart? Love comes but once, and then perhaps too late. This tune and performance by Marie really start to win the family man over. Your voice is amazing. I never heard anything like it, he tells her. The two get really close, suspiciously close as we fade out. For all of you musically inclined listeners out there, you too can attempt to woo a neighbor with the song Phyllis Haver's Marie just played for Judson. You can find the sheet music online for Rose in the Bud, as it was released in conjunction with the film. The Smithsonian has a copy in its collection and describes it thusly. This sheet music for the song Rose in the Bud was written by Percy J. Barrow and composed by Dorothy Foster. The music was published by Chapel Harms, Inc. of New York, New York in 1907. The cover of the sheet music features a photograph of actress Phyllis Haver in the center of the page, looking coquettishly at the viewer. There is also a rose design on the left side of the cover. If you want a glimpse at this sheet music cover the Smithsonian is talking about, head on over to our various social media areas and we will have some pictures posted there for you to see for yourselves. Now, some time has passed and we are back at the apartment. Mr. Judson is really in a mode to impress his pretty young neighbor. Now he wants to improve his physique in order to show off to the girl. His method is reading a book called Poise and Symmetry of Figure, Obesity, Leanness, Their Causes and Effects. Sounds pretty legit for the time. Of course, he is at a disadvantage by not having Cher Forever Fit, the lifetime plan for health, fitness, and beauty by Cher, or Positive Moves by Angela Lansbury. Unfortunately, his fight for fitness came too early for those two great health tomes. Surely he would be in better shape had he had the recipe for Angela Lansbury's legendary power loaf. A damn shame for Mr. Judson, I say. Now, it's time for exercises with Will Judson. He's going to take what he's learned in these books and put it to use. And by doing that, we get a fun bit of physical comedy by Gene Herschelt. He really plays up the fact that his character is incredibly unathletic. And it's good for a couple of laughs. When the physical exercise doesn't bring immediate results, he turns to science. It's a belt machine that vibrates and rubs his belly. I suppose it's an effort to get a chiseled six-pack. But the machine goes all wonky and ends up tossing the man around rather violently. And funnily. After a battle squeezing himself into a man corset, he dresses up and heads on out. 
So, after Judson's health hijinks, we head back to Marie's place, this time with Babe Windsor explaining the next step of the con. He tells Marie to get Judson to sign off on some certificates he hands her. Marie seems to have second thoughts. She doesn't want to do this bit. It's a bit too dangerous for her taste, she says, but he makes it clear she better do it. Some time passes, and we soon learn where Mr. Judson goes every night so dressed up. Mama and Ruth are playing ping pong, but Mama is too sad to really participate. I wish Daddy didn't have to work so hard. He's at it every night now, she explains to Ruth. The daughter tries to raise her mom's spirits with more ping pong, like, you know, anyone would do. This is where we find out that Helen Logan's just opened her new nightclub. They say it's marvelous and the kids really, really want to go. Please, Mumsy, we've never been to a nightclub, Billy implores. Mumsy acquiesces and everyone is happy. Nightclub shenanigans, anyone? As we view some Billy Judson tomfoolery on screen, let's turn our sights to the man behind the incredibly weird man-child. Despite the odd acting choices made in this movie, William Bakewell had a great career that spanned over 50 years. William Robertson Bakewell was born on May 2, 1908 in Los Angeles, California. Unlike many Hollywood hopefuls who made the move to L.A., Bakewell was an OG Angelino. His first green kid came as an extra in 1924's Fighting Blood. Amid an incredibly successful acting career, he saw more important work could be done from his position in pictures. To that end, Billy Bakewell was a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild in 1933. In fact, Bakewell was the 44th of the original 50 members. Billy was the epitome of a working actor. Though, this would never, though his would never be a household name, he was constantly working in a ton of films, including Gone with the Wind. Just counting the 16 years between 1924 and 1940, he appeared in over 75 films. With the breakout of World War II, Bakewell served as a second lieutenant with the United States Army. He was stationed at the 73rd Evacuation Hospital and the radio section of the Special Service Division as post-intelligence officer. He also worked under the department that handled distribution of recorded programs to overseas stations. His film work would continue post-war, and by the 60s, he had added television to his resume. And when I say added, I mean it with capital letters. He went all in on the new medium. His TV roles list is crazy long. But here is a sampling of his work. Mr. Ed, Leave it to Beaver, Petticoat Junction, Sea Hunt, Wagon Train, The Virginian. And that, folks, is just a handful from his resume. The final role for Billy Bakewell came in 1973's The Strongest Man in the World. In addition to plentiful film and television roles, Bakewell served on the board of the Motion Picture and Television Fund for four decades as well as being a successful realtor on the back end of his life. But wait! Yes, there is more! Bakewell's autobiography, Hollywood Be Thy Name, Random Recollections of a Movie Veteran from Silence to Talkies to TV, was published in 1991. On April 15, 1993, Billy Bakewell passed away after a battle with leukemia in Los Angeles, California at the age of 84. Back to the movie, while the family is giddy over the new nightclub, Mr. Judson is in Marie's apartment. Marie comes strutting out in her bathers and tells Judson, I want you to see my new bathing suit. If you don't like it, I'll send it back. Marie Skinner is putting on the full court press and putting on a show. The bashful Mr. Judson looks on. 
As she messes with her suit, she says something is sticking her and he needs Judson and she needs Judson's hands. Continuing the charade, she erotically acts out swimming and asks Judson various stroking questions. She is not messing around. William Judson is incredibly flustered at all of this. Back with the family, Mom is looking good for a night out and leaves her absent hubby a note. It reads, Dearest, I am going out with the children and will not be home until late. Didn't want to go while you were working so hard, but the children insisted so. Love, Mother. She leaves it on the bed before the group heads out. We were at the nightclub and about to get into those earlier mentioned shenanigans. As Mom and the kids sit down, we see Babe Windsor looking on, coolly smoking a cig. He has his eyes on Ruth, interestingly enough. She gives him a look back. With the family having been seated a bit ago, we see the couple of Maurice Skinner and Mr. Judson enter the swanky nightclub. They are seated at a table across the dance floor. From that angle, Ruth sees them. In an instant, her simple, simple heart is broken. She whispers for her brother to subtly take a gander for himself. In an incredibly unsubtle way, he completely turns around to gawk. We must get out of here. It would just kill Mumsy if she saw that, Ruth tells him. In order to create a ruse to get Mumsy out, Ruth says she doesn't like Helen Logan's new nightclub experience. She wants to go somewhere else, post-haste. When that doesn't work, she complains of a killer headache. Not only does Skinner get doted on by Judson in the club, but she is also literally stealing cash from his wallet. Soon the couple takes to the dance floor. As the family heads out, they all see Judson and his new girl. He doesn't know they see him, or even there for that matter. Miss Judson is now super heartbroken as well. They exit the club as the illicit couple continues dancing the night away. All this dancing, however, is not working for the older and out-of-shape Judson. He is tired as can be, with Marie pushing him more and more, dance after dance. With the dancing done, though, the two are back at their table, Judson tuckered out. Marie takes the opportunity to introduce him to Babe Windsor. Babe asks her for a dance, which she obliges as we fade out, and the exhausted Judson watches from the table. He's really not built for painting the town red, I suppose. We fade out on the club and... Return to the Judson household. A despondent Mumsy is in her room being consoled by Ruth. Her sadness soon turns to denial. Don't say anything. Daddy must have been drinking, she explains to Ruth. The two, both in tears, embrace. Some time has passed and Mr. Judson is just now making it home. He is tired and a little tipsy as he enters. Miss Judson is sitting in a chair reading a book, acting like she had been there all night. She asks about his night, to which he responds, I was out with some business friends. Miss Judson shoots back with, I couldn't sleep. I've been sitting here thinking of you, wondering if I've been a good wife to you. He tells her she is a good wife. She wants to say something, but pulls back. She can't do it. This is really an emotional scene. You can feel the tension as you watch the marriage crumble in front of your eyes. So Judson heads to bed. But when he goes to bed, he sees the note that mother left. The jig is up. He realizes right then and there that she knows. How will he respond? Will he see the error in his ways? Will the father realize how important family really is? 
Before we answer those questions, let's look back at the real-life marriages of Belle Bennett as we continue on with her life story. Bennett was married three times. Her first husband was Howard Ralph Macy of La Crosse, Wisconsin. They had a son together, William Howard Macy, whom we talked about earlier. Bennett later had two more children, Jack Oker, a sailor at the base in San Pedro, California, was married to her while she worked with the Triangle Film Corporation in 1918. She later married film director Fred Windermere, and she remained with him until her death. With Battle of the Sexes being made in 1928 and Bennett having been through three marriages by that point, she really had some real-world experience on the topic of failed marriages. Though I don't know the exact circumstances of her various divorces, there had to be feelings and emotions she could tap into to add depth and realism to her character. Back to the movie, the answer is more working nights for William Judson. That is how he responds to his wife and the letter and her knowing everything is going on. He says, I'm going to continue this. And by working late, we mean late night carousing with Marie Skinner. The children are upset and Miss Judson is pushing all her anger and emotion deep down inside her like any well-adjusted person with emotional baggage. Can't you stay home tonight, Daddy? Ruth asks her father. Nah, baby girl, he replies. Mumsy has recently fixed her hair up in an effort to win back her husband. Do you like my hair, she asks. She wants him to stay home with the family. We get some of their embers of love coming back as the two embrace as the children look on with smiles. But alas, there's not going to be any family fun tonight. I can't tonight, Mama. But next Friday, we'll all go out and have a real party, Judson says. This is the straw that breaks Mumsy's back. Daddy, I saw you with that girl, and and I know where you go at night, she tells him. The truth both of them had been denying is now out in the open. The secrets laid bare with choices to be made. The children can hardly bring themselves to watch this drama unfolding. He goes to leave, but his wife runs and grabs him. She is broken down and can't deal with him walking out on her and the family. She holds him tight. Stop it, stop it, Mama. I won't have a scene like this before the children, he tells her. The two continue to fight. He gets a bit physical with her. Yelling commences before he storms out. The aftermath of this walkout results in one of the most melodramatic scenes in the film. Mama has a full-blown mental and emotional breakdown. She can't take it anymore and collapses into her chair. Ruth tries to console her, and Miss Judson really is not in a good place at all, mentally or physically. Now, from melodrama to silliness is what we get next. We move over to Marie Skinner's apartment. She is lounging on a sofa, smoking, as she chats it up with Babe Windsor. He is not having fun. He is all business. Don't darling me unless you've sold those bonds, he tells her. She hasn't, which puts Babe in a tizzy. And nobody, nobody puts Babe in a tizzy. She tells him to get out. It's late, and he can't be seen there. What Marie was afraid of ends up happening. Mr. Judson knocks at her door. She opens it a crack, trying to keep the man out. He gets in only to see that jazz hound, Babe Windsor. He gives the con man a death stare, jealous of his rival's intentions. Windsor sees himself out as the, so the two can be alone. Judson asks her why such a cool dude was there at such a late hour. She says it was just friendly. They've known each other since they were kids, she adds. 
This is not good enough for Judson. I've broken with my family over you. Now you play square with me. Why, honey, don't you trust me, she replies. Judson loses control for a moment and grabs her and shakes her, very ungentlemanly and more proof of what a heel William Judson truly is. There's not much this guy does that is respectable. He's a jerk, and Mumsy is really better off without him, honestly. But that's just me editorializing. Let's get back to the movie. He continues to get physical as the two argue. Marie throws a fit before throwing things at her paramour. Shut up, shut up. You'll rouse the whole neighborhood, he implores. She continues to scream and throw things. She is a professional. All of this is bringing Judson closer. You don't love me. You want to get rid of me, she pouts. Now, now, baby, I'm sorry. I was jealous. I just couldn't help it, he replies. And thus, the psychological ploys have proved successful. Things have certainly escalated. Mama Judson reads a letter from her husband. It reads, in part, I feel I have the right to live in my own way, and that it is best we separate at once. What a jerk. Mama is an emotional mess as she reads this letter. She can't take it. Her life and her identity as a person are wrapped up in this marriage. Without it, she is nothing. Her life, in her eyes, is being ripped away, and not even her children are enough to bring her happiness. The acting of Belle Bennett here is really something special. Her emotions are laid bare here as she looks at the photo from their wedding day and clutches her wedding ring. This photo brings a rush of emotion over the melancholy matriarch. She is fully in despair and basically becomes a zombie of sadness. In her sad stupor, she leaves the apartment and starts walking upstairs. Elsewhere in the building, young Ruth is walking past Marie's apartment where she overhears Marie tell a friend, He's fat and dumb, but he gives me diamonds. This really gets to Ruth, who does nothing in the moment, but things will come to a head soon. We are back with the despondent Mumsy. We see where she was taking the stairs, too. She's on the roof of their skyscraper of an apartment building. She is precariously walking along the ledge. Ruth asks the maid if she has seen her mother. She says she saw her take the steps to the roof. This worries the young lady who rushes after her mother. She sees her mother about to jump, but makes her way over to the ledge where she embraces her mother and pulls her back from the ledge. As we ruminate on the near death her character had, let's look at the real death of Belle Bennett and bring her story full circle. During a break in her film career, Bennett performed in vaudeville at, Phil at the Philadelphia Theater. She collapsed on stage and was checked into a hospital in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There she underwent blood transfusions and she continued acting briefly. In September of 1932, she was rushed by plane from New York City following a relapse of cancer from which she had been suffering for two and a half years. She died November 4th at the incredibly young age of 41 at Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in Los Angeles. Later in her life, Bennett came to believe in the power of prayer and was a practitioner of Christian science. She is interred at the Valhalla Memorial Park Cemetery in North Hollywood. The November 6, 1932 edition of the New York Times reads, A nervous breakdown suffered two years ago led to the death last night of Belle Bennett, a comparatively young actress who gained fame as the portrayer of mother roles on screen. She was 39 years old but appeared much younger in real life. Dr. Leon Tiber, who attended the actress, said death was caused by general carcinomatosis, a form of cancer. At her bedside when she died was her son, Theodore Macy, her husband Fred Windermere, film director, 
left the room shortly before death occurred. We are back to the film, and Ruth has just brought her mother back to safety. I love you, Mumsy. I'd die for you. With everyone's emotions at their highest, we see Sally notice a newspaper lying nearby with an ominous and idea-inducing headline. It reads, Son shoots mother's paramour. Boy slays to protect mother's honor. The light bulb in Ruth's head goes off. She knows what she must do. And this supposed and advertised jazz age comedy that we were promised is really getting dark. Infidelity, theft, suicide, murder? Jazz age comedy? Is it though? Ruth tells the maid to keep an eye on her unwell mother. She kisses her mother before taking off and stealing a gun from her father's nightstand. With weapon in hand, she makes her way to Marie's apartment. Ruth tells Marie's maid that she is expecting her. Left alone, she hides behind a curtain as Marie comes in. The daughter waits for the perfect moment to pounce. But Marie accidentally uncovers Ruth's plan. What are you doing here? What do you want? She asks the girl. You let my daddy alone or I'll kill you, Ruth replies. Ruth pulls the gun out and aims squarely at Marie. There is no mistaking the intentions of the young girl. Marie starts yelling at Ruth, Put that gun down, do you hear me? They'll hang you. You're worse than a murderess, Ruth fires back as Marie cowers in fear. Ruth, however, can't go through with the murdery stuff and freezes for a moment. A moment that Marie takes advantage of and wrestles the gun away from her. With Marie now in control of the situation, Ruth breaks down and pleads with her enemy. You don't love my father. I'll give you all my allowance if you let him alone, she pleads. Marie tells Ruth to get the heck out. Just as this is happening, Babe Windsor presses the doorbell. Marie answers and lets him in. Remember that look Babe gave and Ruth shared at the club? Babe, like any good con man, sees a situation to take advantage of. Before any of that, Windsor wants a drink. Marie thinks it's a terrible idea since Babe ruins things when he drinks. While all of this is going on, William Judson rings the doorbell next. Marie tells him to hold on. She uses that pause to hide everyone in her place. She sends Babe and Ruth to a room together. He tells her to just be quiet, it won't be long. In the meantime, he offers her a drink. Marie reluctantly lets Judson in. He gives her some gifts and she makes a drink for the two of them. As she is taking a drink, she notices Babe left his cane out in the open. If Judson sees it, he's going to flip out. The fuse on this powder keg of a situation is getting close to blowing. Back in the bedroom, Babe is trying to get close with Ruth. He catches a glimpse of her stocking thigh and wants a little more. He moves to sit closer to her. We men of the world never have a chance to meet girls like you, he tells her, laying it on thick. She is now really uncomfortable and tries to leave, only to be grabbed, hugged, and made out with. Judson ends up seeing the cane, and the fuse is lit. That jazz hound's been here again, Judson exclaims. He makes a move to the bedroom where he thinks Babe is hiding. Marie jumps in front of him. Judson gets by her and barges in the door, only to find Babe taking liberties with his daughter. Judson's mind is blown. He was not expecting to find this. Ruth, what are you doing here? Ruth takes the opportunity to turn the tables on her dad. Why, this is my boyfriend, she tells him. To say Judson is shocked is an understatement. Not only does this upset him, but it also rankles the feathers of Marie, who starts yelling at Babe. He denies the accusation, but Marie isn't buying it. I saw you hugging her, she says. 
Then Marie starts throwing hands as Babe tries to plead his case. All right, honey, I believe you, she tells him. But it was just a ruse to get him close so she could punch him again. Back on the Judson Ruth side of things, Father is quite upset with his daughter. You, he tells her, you here with that jazz hound, you're disgracing the whole family. Ruthie has a retort waiting when she replies, it's too late for that, daddy. You beat me to it. I'm just following in your footsteps. Boom. This change in Ruth's character is welcome for sure. Most of the movie, her and her brother have just been incredibly weird up to this point. So seeing growth and human emotion is great, and she plays it perfectly. Things between the two ratchet up a notch when Judson tries to spank his daughter. You can't treat me this way. I have as much right to be here as you have, she yells. Judson comes back with, comes back with, that's different. I'm a man. Not backing down, Ruth replies, yes, well, I am a woman. Their fight eventually moves out to the living room and connects back to Mary and Marie and Babe. This is where the con is finally exposed. As Babe winds up to hit Marie, she lets loose and unfurls the plan. She yells, You? You'd hit me, you big brute, after all I've done for you and put up with for that old sap? Judson hears this, and his whole belief system is shook. Ruth explains, Daddy, don't you hear? She doesn't care anything about you, but we do. With that, Ruth runs out of the apartment. As everything crumbles around him, William Judson lets Babe have a piece of his mind. You jazz hound, you stay away from my daughter. Marie cuts in. She didn't come here for him. She came here to get rid of me. Marie proves it by giving Judson back his gun. Ruth has returned to her mother to tell her the good news. Mumsy, Mumsy, daddy's gotten over his sick spell. Mumsy, though, says it's too late. Back with the ne'er-do-wells, Babe is still pushing his bond scam on William Judson. With the scam in shambles, Babe turns to blackmail. Now, you wouldn't like any unpleasant publicity, would you, Mr. Judson? Judson concedes and signs the bonds. Chock full of embarrassment, heartache, and sadness, Judson leaves to make the walk of shame home. After all the madness, Babe and Marie sit and look back on the experience. You're a fool, she tells Babe, but you're my fool. And to show you can't trust the thief, Marie pickpockets Babe when he's not looking and pockets the check from Judson. Babe, none the wiser. I mean, these two really are perfect for each other. Back home, Judson starts undoing all the trappings of his hysteria. As the flick nears its end, let's take a quick look at the production via the New York Times. The article reads, According to officials of the United Artists Corporation, distributors of the new eight-reel version of The Battle of the Sexes, Mr. Griffith's 1928 edition of the 1913 story, costs more than 100 times more to make, the original production expense of $3,500 taken as the measure. Mr. Griffith spent four months in filming the new version, as against the four days of the first one. Now, back to the movie proper. Some time has passed since the dark times, and it's Mumsy's birthday. The weird children are super excited and put a blindfold on their mother, so as not to spoil the surprise. We've saved the biggest present, Mumsy, to the last. We'll carry it in and unwrap it here, Ruth explains. Surprise, surprise, or maybe not a surprise, it's Mr. Judson. I've had a bitter, bitter lesson, Mama. Won't you forgive me, he asks. The children anxiously wait with bated breath for their mother's answer. Because this is a movie, she says yes and the two embrace. The children smile as they tear up. They embrace group hug style as the movie fades out. 
as Mummy lights Mumsy lights her husband's cigar. And that, folks, is the end of 1928's The Battle of the Sexes. So as the movie has come to an end, and the movie breakdown in our rear view, let's let's talk about our thoughts on the movie. From a production standpoint, it's a completely competent film. It looks decent and plays like a movie directed by a guy with a lot of experience. Like I said, perfectly competent. Most of the performances were decent. Again, the performance of the children was not my vibe at all. It was so strange, some of the choices they made. But they were weird enough that I guess they ended up verging on entertaining. So bad it's good territory, I guess you could say. They definitely need to be seen to be believed, that's for sure. I mean, it was a competent film with some narrative stuff, though, that also had me scratching my head. There's a lot of good girl power type stuff. On both the protagonist side and the antagonist side, we have strong women that really push the story along. Despite Babe Windsor being the supposed brains of the operation, from the beginning and throughout the film and the last scene with Marie and Babe, we see that Marie is in control of everything, even if Babe has no idea. I loved how cheeky Marie could be. Phyllis Haver really showed her star quality in this film. Her character had so many ups and downs, and Haver really had no issue conveying all those disparate emotions. What a fun character, and a really fun payoff at the very, very, very end. On the other side, we have Ruth. While Ruth has a childlike goofiness, but under that goofiness, though, there is a powerful woman who fights for what is important to her. She is the strongest person in the household by a long shot. Whether I want her wielding a gun or not, that's a whole nother question. But even all jokes aside, she was a great character who grew and changed and ended up resolving the whole matter. I mean, I think these are great for tra- great traits for a character to have and show throughout a film. It was especially awesome seeing her stand up to her father. There was no subtext there. She pushed back against him at every turn. Sally O'Neill did some really great work in this movie with her role. Now, as we sit back and admire the feminism of the film, a lot of that goodwill can also be tempered by the portraying of some really poor morals and weak characters in the movie. Mumsy was really made to be a doormat, and it's a shame because Belle Bennett is such a talented actress. In her performance, she did great with what she was given, but her character was one who acquiesces and gives in at the drop of a hat. And this movie has a lot of despicable characters with William Judson at the top of that list. The fact is, he's sort of rewarded for his terrible behavior and that really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, he is a legit bad human being and he should have been kicked to the curb. I can understand the need to wrap things up in a nice bow for audiences at the time, but this is a film of mixed messages. Having seen it a second time in an official capacity, well... Honestly, I've seen it a lot more than two times, but covering it two times for podcast episodes, I can safely say this will probably be the last time we dive into this flick. For another three years, at least. But before we wrap up this remake, there was one person we wanted to shout out from the production staff of 1928's The Battle of the Sexes. Our first time covering this topic, a few years ago, we dove into the life of controversial director D.W. Griffith. This time, it seemed right to turn our attention to another man behind the cam, Carl Struess. Struess was one of two men helming the cinematography for this film. The other being G.W. Bitzer, who you'd recognize from our Edgar Allan Poe episode. But for now, let's focus our attention on Carl. The future cinematographer and photographer extraordinaire was born on November 30th, 1886, in New York City. 
After an early life of factory work, Struss developed a love of photography. He attended Columbia University from 1908 till graduating in 1912. By 1914, he was in business for himself, having taken over the studio of photographer Clarence H. White. His knack for innovation began early in these years when he created the soft focus Struess lens. This lens was popular with photographers and eventually made its way to the motion picture industry in 1916. While we're on the topic of lens development, to say Struess was a pioneer of photography, both still and moving, is putting it mildly. Throughout his career, he was always inventing and refining techniques and technologies. His talents weren't strictly confined to the civilian sector, however. It's from a UPI obit for Carl Struess that appeared in the December 19, 1981 edition of the New York Times that we learn about his civilian and military photography career. The article reads, Mr. Struess worked with such major fig figures in photography as Edward Weston and Alfred Stieglitz, and during World War I, he became involved in secret infrared photographic processes for the War Department. After his discharge in 1919, Struess headed to the West Coast and Los Angeles. In an interview with Kenneth Turin from the July 11, 1977 edition of the Washington Post, entitled The Art of a Cameraman Carl Struess, we get a look into why the move to California was so appealing. Struess explains, I was a native New Yorker and I hated the climate. It would be below freezing in New York, and when I saw in the papers that the temperatures that the temperature was in the 60s and 70s in California, I knew it was just the place for me, he says, pleased with his choice. And besides, I figured the cameramen they had in those days weren't really photographers. Anyone who could turn a crank was a cameraman. He wasn't kidding about the camera work in Hollywood. His talent was noticed early on and soon connected with director Cecil B. DeMille. His first gig with DeMille was as cameraman on 1919's For Better, For Worse, which starred Gloria Swanson. He followed that up with more camera work on another CBD and Swanson project, Male and Female. His exemplary work on those films led to a two-year contract. As the 20s wore on, Struss would do some of his best and most groundbreaking work in some of the biggest films of the era. Among those were the troubled but ultimately awesome 1925 Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, and the 1927 F.W. Murnau picture, Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans. By the way... Struess and Charles Rocher won the first ever Academy Award for Best Cinematography for their work on Sunrise. Dipping back to Ben-Hur for a moment, he was called into action for that movie, and not only did he step in and take over, but he also developed the color filter techniques for the healing of the lepers sequence. Everywhere this guy goes, home and abroad, he is doing cool, cutting-edge feats of camera magic. Let's turn back to the New York Times to catch up on Struess's post-Sunshine work. The article reads, For the next three years, he filmed all of Miss Pickford's movies, including The Taming of the Shrew. In 1932, Mr. Struss changed Friedrich March from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde with color filters and was again nominated for an Oscar. Struss would tell Kenneth Turin one of his favorite movie memories. Turin wrote, Perfecting his most famous effect, the change in a Friedrich March from Dr. Heckel, Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde, without any cuts or dissolves by using makeup sensitive to different color filters. It was a natural. I had already done it with the healing of the lepers in Ben-Hur. I don't remember ever talking with the director, Ruben Mamoulian, about it. I just did it. But today when we appeared at colleges, he never wants me to disclose what and how it was done. As further evidence of Struess's predilection for working on famous films with the biggest of stars, I offer this as evidence. 
1940, Struess was one of two cinematographers on the Charlie Chaplin classic, The Great Dictator. Another Oscar nomination came in 1952 for his work on another Chaplin film. This time it was Limelight. And in between those two, he was constantly working. He even worked on a 3D film in Italy called Cavalleria Rusticana. After some more films and television work, Struess retired in 1972. The cameraman would pass away as a result of heart failure on December 15, 1981, at the ripe old age of 95. His death occurred at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, California, and he is buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York. From one death to another, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the amazing actresses that have entertained us so much. In the New York Times obituary of Phyllis Haver, we look back at the life of the star. The article reads, She retired in 1929 during the advent of talking pictures and became the bride of Mr. Seaman, a New York businessman. The marriage was performed by Mayor James J. Walker at the home of Rube Goldberg, the cartoonist. Although she was at the peak of her career, she decided to retire from acting. She and William Seaman moved into an 11-room penthouse in New York City. Phyllis said she loved being a wife and never wanted to return to Hollywood. The article continues, In an interview in 1940, Miss Haver reminisced about her scarlet skirt role, saying, If there was ever a bad woman to be played, I played it. She was known for her beauty, her large blue eyes, and bobbing yellow curls. She once described her favorite role as that of Roxy Hart in the 1927 film Chicago. A review in the New York Times called her performance astoundingly fine. Miss Haver, the review said, makes this combination of tragedy and comedy a most entertaining piece of work. Her film career ended shortly after the Battle of the Sexes in 1928. She would appear with Lon Chaney in his last silent film, 1929's Thunder, and follow that up with two sound features, one in 29 and the other in 1930. Her film career ended in 1930 and her marriage would end in 1945. With a failed marriage and out-of-the-picture industry, Phyllis Haver retired to Sharon, Connecticut. The end of Phyllis Haver's life, though, would be incredibly sad and tragic. In Haver's November 21, 1960, New York Times obit, we learn the heartbreaking circumstances of the actress's death. The article reads, The body of the 60-year-old actress was found yesterday by a housekeeper in a bedroom. An initial investigation indicated that the death was caused by barbiturate poisoning, a medical examiner said. The police said that Miss Haver, who had lived alone here since a divorce from William Seaman 15 years ago, attempted suicide a year ago. More details were provided by a UPI report in the Humboldt Standard newspaper out of Eureka, California. The report reads, Miss Graham, I believe she was Phyllis's housekeeper, Miss Graham said Miss Haver deeply mourned the recent death of Max Sennett and was depressed because she had been unable to help him when he needed it most. The article continues, Miss Haver, according to Miss Graham, never knew that M- Mr. Sennett was living in extreme poverty during the last year. She read about it in the obituaries two weeks ago and was shocked. Phyllis was buried at Grassy Hill Cemetery in Falls Village, Connecticut. With the show exiting the remake zone and returning to its normal spot in the movie podcast space-time continuum, we want to thank you for taking this trip down memory lane with us as we try to make good for a shaky first episode.
Did you enjoy this new version of old content? Are there up other episodes of you, of ours that you think could use a remake? What bits of the new content did you enjoy learning about the most? Let us know all of that and more at the various social media spots of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think of this episode. What silent and silent-related movies, past or present, do you want us to look at next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we need your input for future episodes here in Season 3 and beyond. You can always find us at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence 1 on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, and review. It does a lot for our visibility, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes. We hope you had as much fun with this remake as we did remaking it. And with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. According to Kenneth Turin and Struess himself, what Struess sees these days is better left unsaid. Today, I don't know. I don't go to see pictures for photography. The people who are photographers know nothing of the fundamentals of photography. You have these big, full-screen close-ups of faces these days. That's disgusting. A lot of baloney.